The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, I'm Rashma Kapadia, Associate Editor at Barron's. Welcome to Barron's Live, Managing Your Money, What Inflation, Rising Rates, and the Fed Means for Your Bond Portfolio. Today with me is Sonal Desai, Chief Investment Officer at Franklin Templeton Fixed Income, a member of the Barron's Roundtable and our 100 Most Influential Women in Finance. Welcome, Sonal. Hi, Rashma. Thank you for having me. So this is a big week. Maybe that's an understatement with the Fed meeting today and tomorrow. A lot of angst in the markets about inflation, the state of the global economy, and how well central bankers can manage this very difficult dance. So let's start with the Fed and your view on inflation. Um, what do you, you know, what are you expecting for the meeting, and what does the Fed need to really do to tamp down inflation? So I think the Fed is going to. Uh, raise rates by 50 basis points tomorrow. And that's something we haven't seen uh, pretty much in the post-global financial crisis period. So in the post-2007, 2008 period to go 50 basis points in a single uh, rate meeting, we haven't seen this in a very long time Mm -hmm. from this Fed. And so one thing is, I think that's a given. And the reason I think that that is a done deal, 50 basis points tomorrow, is because the market has already priced it. Inflation is very high. The Fed needs to do something about that. And since they aren't going to create any waves by delivering 50, they will certainly deliver that. Mm -hmm. The question to me is much more, what else will the Fed do? How will they signal what they're going to do with their balance sheet? How much more by way of rate hikes should we expect from them? And I think we will start getting some fairly hawkish guidance from them starting already tomorrow. Interesting. So I think I, I can't remember at the, it moves so quickly, but how many sort of rate hikes is the market pricing in right now um, for the Fed? So right now, so to get everybody on the same page, the Fed has already raised uh, 25 basis points so far this year in its last meeting. Mm-hmm. And we think they're going to do and the market is pricing for the full rate hike cycle. Now, the rate hike cycle is an interesting thing because it's spread out over the next couple of years. But uh, currently, the market is pricing around three to three and a quarter, I would say. Mm -hmm. This is not an exact science because you deduce it from the shape of yield curves. I actually think the Fed is likely to do more than Mm -hmm. three, three and a quarter. I think we could get above 3% already by the end of this year. So it could be uh, significantly more, perhaps, than the market is currently anticipating. Okay. So, I mean, this is rocky, rocky times for the market, I guess. I mean, what is sort of what should bot investors be expecting in this in this near term, especially in the next um, you know couple of months or the next couple sort of Fed meetings? I would say, look, realistically, I I oversee fixed income. It's a not just a difficult, it's a close to impossible time for me to talk my book because fixed income is not attractive when the Fed is raising rates. To give you a sense of why that is, think about what happens when you buy a 10-year bond. If that 10-year bond today is yielding, say, 3%, so you get 3% 
over the course of your 10 years, that's how much you would expect to, but this is your 3% yield. Mm -hmm. Now, supposing, so you buy that bond. Now, supposing next month, the yields go up and 10-year bonds are now yielding 3.5%, or let's, for argument's sake, to keep it simple, 4%. Mm -hmm. Now, if they yield 4%, that is a 25% loss because you have now bought something which gives you more income. So the earlier bond that you bought at 3%, its price is going to fall. And that's why we say that yields are negatively related to bond prices. When yields go up, prices tend to come down. And when yields come down, prices tend to go up because the bonds which are already out there, which are yielding more in that second situation now, uh, are paying more by way of income. We are in the opposite situation right now. That is why I say that for fixed income, it's a very difficult time to be engaged in fixed income because at one level, if you believe that yields are going to continue to go up, you might lose money. Having said this, I do want to put in a caveat, which is currently for investment grade securities. So these are our best corporations. Even those which don't have 10 years, 20 years of a lifetime on them, mm -hmm. these bonds have started yielding 4% plus. These are levels which we have not seen now in a yeah. very long time. So, so that makes, there is income. I, I used to joke, fixed income for the past many years has, been, has not delivered income and it's not been very fixed because it's right. been volatile. And now at least we will likely start seeing those income numbers go up. And that so, uh, we've already seen them. We've so already that, seen that. That is a great explanation. Thank you so much. Because I think a lot of people are, it's confusing, right? And there's a lot of bond jargon in, in, in there yeah. too. So I'm going to ask you a little bit more because we have a question from Barbara who um, asks how the Fed's rate hikes will affect bond spreads tightening and widening, which you kind of kind of alluded to, but just explain to people. So now you're getting a, you're getting some income, but you may be getting the, the you know you may be seeing the prices in your portfolio drop a little bit. At some point, they offset each other to some extent yeah. in terms of return, right? But yeah. how should people be thinking about words like spreads or tightening or widening? Like, what does that mean to the regular bond investor? So when people, when professionals, let, let me break it down. And uh, apologies if I don't do this very well, but <laughs> because I'm not the world's best explainer. But what I'd say is when you buy a company, okay, so let's call it, uh, uh, I am, uh, let's just say it's Walmart, Okay, and you you buy Walmart as an investment grade credit. You buy Walmart if you just go out and buy that bond for Walmart. You are essentially making a call on the future profitability of Walmart, and Walmart has borrowed money. That's what a bond is; they're borrowing money, and you're making a call on the likelihood that Walmart will pay you back, and hopefully, it's it's uh, debt. Uh, people will think that it's debt sustainability looks better and better because it's making more and more profits. Mm -hmm. So in fact, the next set of bonds that Walmart issues, perhaps they get issued at a lower rate, the price would, and so your higher yielding Walmart debt will in fact see its price go up. So that's, that's, that's one level at what, for which you buy investment grade bonds. Yep. However, the other side of that is that to some extent, Walmart debt may sell off just because treasuries, U.S. treasuries, which are considered the risks, 
they are essentially risk-free because you yeah. know that the government of the United States is never going to default. We can talk more about that yeah. later. But, <laughs> but essentially, that's what we call using some jargon risk-free. So if I buy a 10-year treasury for 3%, I know if I buy $100 worth of treasury at the end of 10 years, I will get $100 back. In the interim, I'm going to get my yield of 3%. Yeah. That's what Right now, if treasuries start yielding more because they sell off, as we say, then it doesn't make sense anymore. If Walmart used to pay me, uh, say, three and three point two five percent, but treasuries suddenly now give me three yeah. percent, Walmart itself has to start yielding more. So there are two levels. If Walmart continued to pay me, if Walmart used to pay me. 3.25 and treasuries used to be 2%, sorry, 2.75. So they, supposing Walmart gave me 50 basis points yeah. more than treasuries. Now that I have treasuries at 3%, Walmart has to take wherever it was, which was 3.25, and you add 50 basis points yeah. to it, yeah. right? So that is not spread widening. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the spread is the number between Walmart's bonds and the risk-free rate, which is U.S. treasuries. Now let me give you a completely different story, which is, okay, yeah, treasuries are selling off, but I think there's going to be a recession. In a recession, Walmart is going to do badly for mm -hmm. argument's sake. Yeah. In that case, independently from what's happening to treasuries, if yeah. I want to lend Walmart money, I have to pay I have to get them to pay me more. Yeah. Uh, sorry, they have to pay me more. So, not only will Walmart sell off because treasuries are higher, but it will also sell off because mm -hmm. of a, its own fundamentals have become worse. Now the spread might not be 50 basis points, it might be 100 basis points. Mm -hmm. Now I picked Walmart out of a hat, it's a great yeah. company. Yeah, yeah, hypothetical <laughs> company. Just yeah. giving you an example. God, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Okay, um, that, that's actually very helpful. So let's let's kind of go from the Fed to um, the economy. So your Fed expectations obviously stem from your view on the economy. So what are you thinking here about recession, stagflation, some of these risks people are throwing out there, you know, how, where are we going in terms of the economy? So I'd say that the risks of recession have gone up. Okay, that is very clear. Why do we think that the risks of recession have gone up when unemployment is as low as it is? And every single month, we hear that the number of job openings in this economy are in order of magnitudes larger than the number of people looking for jobs. So this is a very tight labor market. Why does this matter? Because Traditionally, the way you get a recession is uh, corporations invest, then they overinvest, they build up inventories, they've hired too many people, then they have to unwind all of this. So they start firing people, they run down their inventories, and suddenly you're in a recession and the economy cools. Okay, so that's a traditional recession because when companies overinvest and unemployment is too low, typically the Fed will raise rates and all of those things get unwound. So that is traditionally what happens. Where are we right now? Companies have not overinvested. If anything, companies are just coming back from COVID. They haven't yet gotten to that overextension phase. Mm -hmm. Far from having overemployed people, companies are desperately looking for more people to hire. That means near term, the chances of recession are not huge. However, the Fed has to raise rates. 
Why does the Fed have to raise rates? Well, inflation is ridiculously high. It is very high. And I do think that the Fed has made some important mistakes in its reaction to inflation. And I've been saying this now for a year and a half. Yep. So I'm not jumping onto a bandwagon here. You know that, Reshma. I've been you saying were this. very early at a roundtable. <laughs> I've been saying this for a while that I've been concerned about inflation. And the reason is not a it is absolutely true that, you know, energy prices are up because of the war in Ukraine. It's absolutely true because of COVID and in particular now China's zero COVID policy supply chain bottlenecks have meant that prices haven't, uh, prices go up because uh, production is not as smooth as it used to be. But predating this is the fact that the Fed increased its balance sheet. It doubled its balance sheet in a matter of months after COVID. Now, at that time, that was the right policy response. The economy was shut down. The Fed needed to stimulate the economy, or at least try and make it so markets continue to function. And importantly, we had a 1.9 trillion fiscal expansion. This was in 2020, followed by a 900 billion fiscal expansion, still in 2020. Then we had a 1.9 trillion again in 2021 with the new administration. And all this is happening, by the way, after the initial crisis is over, in the sense, when I'm talking about crisis here, I'm not talking about the health crisis, I'm talking about the fact that the economy was reopening. Yeah. We had vaccines, economy was reopening. At the start of this year, uh, it was abundantly clear that we were already past the, le past the crisis point for the economy, all right? Mm -hmm. So I'm making no call here on COVID, I'm talking about the economy. Yep. At that stage, the Fed should have already started stopping to buy it was buying. What does this mean when the Fed buys? When the Treasury issues, uh, when the U.S. Treasury issues U.S. Treasury bonds, these get sold. Different people can buy them, but in the post-COVID period and in the post-global financial crisis period, the Fed has been one of the buyers of these ten years and and thirty-year Treasuries, which is very unusual for a central bank. What happens is, as, I, as we started talking about it, when there is a greater demand for bonds, this drives down interest rates. When interest rates get driven down, everything gets stimulated. You get more housing. You get housing prices going up. Mm -hmm. And we have housing prices going up. You have essentially stimulus to the economy. And my belief is that the fiscal policy and monetary policy, the extent to which it lasted was way more than it needed to have been. So essentially what the Fed is doing now, I'm not suggesting it should have raised 50 basis points last year this time. However, even before this time last year, as soon as the 1.9 trillion passed, they could have stopped expanding their balance sheet. They were expanding their balance sheet right through March of this year. So yeah. we've had very easy policy. Interesting. Yeah. So it's, there is this idea that they were behind the curve. Um, yeah. So I, I just want to remind the audience to submit questions in the Q&A function, and, and we'll try to get to them as we go through this conversation. Um, so you mentioned the bottlenecks um, in the supply chain, and obviously China has played a role in that. Um, China's economy is a major concern for many people. Um, you know, there's, they have a very strong zero COVID policy. COVID is not something that they've moved past quite yet. Um, how are you thinking about the slowdown in China, which also has structural forces, right, with its property market and its crackdowns and, and whatnot? But how how is that going to impact the Fed's decision and really just the global economy? So, you know, unfortunately, the Fed, because 
of how behind the curve they are. They don't have the luxury of looking at what's happening in China. In a perfect world, they would have actually built up the firepower to be able to respond. Mm. Right now, they're not in a position to do that because monetary policy is way too easy. Keep in mind what the actual impact of China's supply chain, you know, the zero COVID is. Supply chains, I always think about them, they're like accordions, right? Mm -hmm. So in a perfect world, they come down together, they move together, you know, but they're they're moving smoothly. This is like a discordant, or it's almost like music playing. You have ripple effects coming from one end, and it's going to the other end, and you don't know where the bottlenecks are going to show up. Yeah. So, and the problem with zero COVID is, as we know, new variants always come out. And so they're unpredictable. You don't know. So this particular current variant, it might go over every COVID uh, cycle seems to last four to six weeks in most countries. And so this will go, but you don't know another one. Another one might come, not immediately afterwards, but in an unpredictable way, in a forward-looking way. And I'd say that China has a massive uh, political event in the fourth quarter of this year. It's called the People's Congress. And she is not going to change what he's doing in China before that Congress. So at least for the rest of this year, we will continue to have these sudden starts and stops depending on COVID, which is unpredictable, coming out of China. Mm. What is the impact of that? Well, unfortunately, uh, it means higher prices. It it does. That That's the bottom yeah. line, because China is a massive exporter, the US is a massive importer, and you're going to get higher prices. So it yeah. all feeds into the existing narrative, which, is, which we have right now here in the US. Of higher inflation, right. So the yeah. other reason I wanted to bring up China is that policy is diverging here in the world yes. in terms of monetary policy. You know, so where the Fed is trying to hike rates 50 basis points today or tomorrow, um, the, China is going in the other direction. They did not stimulate the way that everyone else did during um, 2020 and 2021. So what does that mean for the market, especially the bond market? So mostly, so it means it even more than the bond market it has impacts on car it has an impact on currency markets actually and that is because uh in the, at its most basic level uh what would happen is uh that you have, let me take for a moment leaving putting china to aside i would note that if i look across the world you have the us you have the euro area you have japan and then of course you have china yeah. and you have many other countries but these are four very important countries from a bond market perspective especially the first three which is the us the euro area and Japan. And this, what happens to the relative interest rates across these different countries has a big implication for currencies. Interest rates, meaning central bank rates, and then the impact on currencies. However, it's not as straightforward as going out and saying, well, you know, US treasuries are yielding 3%, uh, German bonds are yielding 50 basis points, I get a 2.5% pickup, I can go buy German bonds, which is the German treasury, because all of us know that Germany is not going to default either. Right. It's not that straightforward because when you buy German bonds, you don't buy them in dollars, you buy them in uh, euros, mm-hmm. which means you first have to go out and buy euros. And then when you get your money back, you're going to get back euros. So at that time, you have to come back and buy dollars. Mm-hmm. Now, if the dollar-euro exchange rate in the meanwhile has changed, you might lose all your gains. And this is why currencies start becoming complicated, right? Yeah. And the reality is the way most of us in markets try to avoid the unpredictable nature of currency moves is to hedge out the currency exposure. So I already decide what level I want to buy back 
Mm -hmm. uh, so, so today I buy euros, but I already buy dollars in the future for when I sell my bond. Yeah. The problem is that to do that, it means I have to buy future dollars. Mm -hmm. And that's when the US, the change in interest rates, the difference in interest rates hurts you. So after you've hedged, the cost of doing this trade is it, make, it becomes a lot less attractive. Yeah. Nonetheless, U.S. Treasuries being as they are, much you will see some euro weakness. You will see Japanese yen weakness because at the end of the day, there will be some people who don't hedge and they will just go out and just buy U.S. U.S. Mm -hmm. Treasuries. And so I'd say that that implies that the dollar is going to be strong for a little while now. It will be it will be strong until we. I think that we are, we're anticipating rate hikes in the euro area as well, but they are not overheating as much as the U.S. is. Yeah. Because monetary policy was as easy, but fiscal policy was not as easy. And if I look at Japan, Japan is going to ease even. Sorry, is going to tighten even less because they mm -hmm. have less less of a problem at every stage. So all these different monetary policies, and then you come to China, which of course is going to be trying to ease because they didn't ease as much earlier, as you noted, but even they have limits to what they can do because they also didn't tighten too much. So, you know, so in a sense, China is in a in the awkward position of needing to stimulate an economy, but having somewhat limited room from the monetary policy side. Mm. So from a bond market perspective, there isn't a nice answer in the sense of saying, it's okay, I don't have to go long treasuries where I'm going to potentially lose money if yields go up because I can buy something in Europe instead, because that once you have hedged, you're not going to make as much of a profit, uh, yeah, profit yeah. as you originally thought. But on balance, it might give you something. I think there are better things you could do perhaps in the US itself mm -hmm. than going to Europe right now or Japan. Okay, so let's let's talk a little bit about that. I you know there are a lot of questions coming in, so I'm going to start getting some of those. And um, we have one from Lewis who's asking, you know, for seniors, where you often think about the 60/40 portfolio, and as you get into retirement, you often have a bigger fixed income um, allocation. Where should these folks be putting their their investments at this point in time? Their fixed income investments. So what I would suggest is look. Uh, I would suggest first of all shortening up duration or the maturity structure of your uh, investments. So for example, I, I I noted that I think that, you know, US investment grade is currently yielding a little bit over 4%, mm -hmm. right? In fact, if you had the current seven and a half years of duration, and we can certainly get back to you about exactly what duration is, but you would get around four and a half percent. However, you could reduce that to, you know, so if you lend money for a longer period, yeah. you get a better rate. But on the other hand, one to three year corporates are yielding around three and a half percent. So mm -hmm. that is a lot better. So I would say reducing the maturity structure of the fixed income that you are holding is one thing which would be a good idea for a period of time because it is volatile right now. Yeah. However, within about a year or so, I think you can go back to having that longer duration in your books because hopefully a lot of that steepening, you know, where the long end yields keep mm -hmm. going up will be behind us after a year, year and a half. But right now, whether you do it in investment grade, whether you decide to take a little bit more risk than investment 
investment grade, which is going to something like high yield, mm -hmm. uh, where you can actually get 7% plus uh, right now. And naturally, high yield companies, they're slightly more risky. However, they yield a lot more and they also, you don't lend riskier borrowers uh, for longer duration. So they tend to be shorter in duration and that's, mm -hmm. that's positive. Uh, I think uh, certainly uh, right, there's been a massive sell-off in uh, municipal bonds, tax-free yep. bonds, right? Yep. Now, yep. keep in mind that sell-off has been, it's its an interesting situation because it's been on the back of the treasury sell-off that people, and, and, and people are probably looking at their portfolios and they're seeing that their muni bonds uh, have a negative uh, mark to market. So it's like a it's it's as if uh, equity price fell. Yep. The point is the muni returns are currently still very attractive. And the most important thing is that the boom we've had post-COVID and the amount of fiscal stimulus which went into this market, it means that the fundamentals of individual municipalities are very mm -hmm. strong. Yeah. And so, in fact, here you have states around the country reporting significant surpluses as they go into budget season. This is a good thing because when the state, it's bad for all of us who pay taxes, but yeah. it is a good thing because when there are significant surpluses, it means that they are less likely to need to issue more money, which issue, sorry, issue more debt, which in turn means that those tax-free uh, bonds have, there are fewer of them. And yeah. again, they, uh, they have underlying value there. So I think that, uh, I really think that munis should be a part of any asset allocation. Uh, and right now, there are some really good opportunities pretty much across the spectrum, because even in munis, you've got different levels of states. That's great. Yeah, you just answered a question from Michael. So thank you for doing that without me even asking. Um, so we, you know, EM is another, emerging markets is another area that has seen a sharp sell-off. You hear about default, Sri Lanka, you know, Russia, all these, all these things. How are you looking at the opportunity there? And do you want to be in dollar-denominated debt or local currency debt? So I'd say that uh, emerging markets are definitely having a rough time right now, <laughs> okay, because again, you've got a lot of different wins coming in. The first thing which you have to do with EM is uh, try and separate out. So if you are not invested in EM yet, this is not a bad time to consider being taking some exposure to EM, but in a very active way. Mm -hmm. Let me be specific here, because right now, much like with other markets which have sold off a lot, emerging markets have sold off a lot. Yeah. At this point, most funds will already have marked down their Russian debt, their Ukrainian debt, their Belarusian mm -hmm. debt down very, very low. So that means you're coming in after spreads have blown out quite a yeah. bit. Yeah. So that's one thing which is important. Number two, emerging markets, I tend to say that if you're looking at, you know, their blended strategies, which are always very interesting with 80% or so largely in uh, hard currency yeah. and up to 15 to 20% in local currency. If I look at hard currency or local currency, especially for hard currency, note that when you have commodity prices doing what they are currently doing, EM, you have 
strong winners and you have losers. And you need to actually have an actively managed portfolio which picks the winners. Who are the winners? Anybody who's exporting uh, commodities. By and large, you have political risk in Latin America, but otherwise Latin America mm -hmm. benefits from high metals yeah. prices, high energy prices. Large parts of LATAM actually benefit. So I think essentially you have to really navigate this. It, Local currency, again, the question comes down to how good is their balance of payments position. But importantly, many emerging markets had started raising rates early. So mm -hmm. they are actually in, uh, they're, they're not in a dreadful situation just because the U.S., is raising rates. Yeah, which is often what we think about when we think about yeah, emerging yeah. markets. So that's important. Um, so we have a question from um, Kapil who says, you said companies have underinvested. Um, Amazon, of course, just came out with yeah. their earnings and mentioned that they may have overinvested. Is this a canary in a coal mine situation? I think it's actually more, it's an excellent question. And I didn't mean that all companies have underinvested. I'd just say right. relative to a traditional. So in a traditional recession, let me be clear, when I say Overinvested, it means companies have historically allowed inventories to build up, right? And and that really hasn't happened. Now, Amazon, I don't see it as a canary in the coal mine because it is such a very specific and particular model, right? It is a model which thrived in particular over the course of uh, COVID, and Amazon did expand enormously at that time, and. Uh, not to put too fine a point on it, I would just note that currently we're also seeing uh, negotiations uh, across the board with between Amazon and uh, various workers. And you have to wonder whether this is a part of the broader broader negotiating tactic. But I do think that Amazon's uh, Amazon's earnings are interesting. But the other side of that is that I would anticipate you would continue to see uh, some strength in the consumer for a while mm -hmm. yet, because it is very much that specific yeah. mail order version. That makes sense. Um, okay, so Lee asks, what happens, in your opinion, after the Fed raises short-term interest rates enough and downsizes its balance sheet to quell in inflation? So, you know, where do you see the 10-year and five years, for example? Um, are we going back to 2% or is it more that we kind of get to a, a higher sort of equilibrium of three and a half to four? Higher, higher equilibrium is my goal. Yeah. I think you get to a higher equilibrium. I think we will look in the years ahead and look at this period in the post-global financial crisis period where everyone assumed that rates were going to be permanently low. Mm -hmm. That I, I think that will be an anomaly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So. Yeah. And so I guess um, Carlos is ask, asking, should I expect my ag position to lose value in this environment? So that would be like the, you know, sort of the bond benchmark. The bond benchmark. I would say that for a, for a period of time, yes, I would say that it's likely. Now, you can certainly hedge out a lot of your, you know, you can barbell your risks. But what I would really, truly expect is several months of extreme volatility, in part because we entered this with somewhat stretched valuations. Yeah. I think there will be some volatility, some bond losses, but I think that we are getting ready for perhaps a better time for bonds. Mm -hmm. It's just not right now. So know? for those folks who, who you know, took the advice and didn't look at their portfolios and haven't really readjusted their bond allocation, you know, from the last couple of years, I mean, 
it's obviously too late to make, is it too late to make moves at this point in time? I mean, how should they be doing it if they are long-term oriented investors and this is part of their 60, 40 bucket that they're not touching for the next year or two? So, you know, I would go back to my earlier response and I would see if there is an extent to which uh, people can work with their uh, advisors and try to shorten the alloc- shorten the duration of the allocation to bonds, mm-hmm. right? Because if you already have it, I would say I anticipate that you might indeed uh, uh, be in a position where for the next several months, your bond portfolio will there will be points at which uh, there are drawdowns because I think that rates are going to go up. Now, if one asks, where do you go if you're not going to bonds? At the start of this year, Ishmael had said, you know, I like, uh, I certainly like commodities. I like ETFs which have, uh, which are related to anything from real estate onwards because these are good, typically decent inflation hedges. A lot of these have run quite a long way as well. And so what I'd say is my, my thought would be don't, you don't, if you are, depending on where you are, you know, if you're extremely, if you're long-term oriented, but you're, depending on where in the life cycle of an investment you are, you might consider moving to shorter duration and then extending into the point once rates have actually gone up. Yeah. Uh, if you are at the point where you can simply reduce your dura- reduce your bond exposure, I'd say uh, by all means, but then actively go back in once yeah. we've had the cycle come to a head. Mm-hmm. And and let's just let's go through that duration jargon just a second. So like I think when you're saying shortened duration, you're talking about if I remember you said around three years, right? Is that what you're looking at? No, no. What I'm saying is one to three years uh, bonds which are one to three years. Uh, uh, maturity, so bonds in that U.S. investment grade, which is one years to three years in maturity. Duration is a word which we, which effectively captures both the maturity mm-hmm. and the coupon that you get from the bond. So you put the two together and you get this number called duration, which tells you what, how, how long effectively your yield is. One to three years, average duration is something like two years. So this is something which people, I'm not suggesting everyone needs to go sure. to that short, but you know, if you've got, uh, eight, nine, 10 years of duration on your book, it might make sense mm-hmm. to consider moving to lower duration products, be the, be they, uh, and if you want to remain in a relatively low risk environment, that would be investment grade. I would say. Yeah, that makes sense. OK, so uh, there's uh, Hal asks if the Fed is reducing rates. Um, I guess if he's he's asking if the rate if the risk of a recession increases, do you expect the Fed to sort of step back from its rate increases? And the answer to this, uh, I don't want to sound too much like an economist, but it really does depend in the sense that if you see the risks of recession go up while inflation is still at 6%, unfortunately, the Fed is not in a position to step back. They still need to tackle that inflation, right? Because that inflation comes from excesses. And ultimately, what happens is the longer inflation stays higher, the more likely it is that uh, workers are going to not accept uh, less than inflation wage increases, which impl- implies you're validating the price increases, right? So it starts setting into what we tend to call a wage price spiral. I'm not saying that's a given yet, but it could happen. And if that happens, the Fed, that's what stagflation is. 
basically right. you you are at risk of a recession or a risk of a sharp slowdown but inflation actually isn't coming down it's quite stubborn and it's mm-hmm. staying quite high in that environment uh the fed is not in a position to actually immediately step back from rate cuts now this has been this is an environment that uh definitely most or most generations have not even seen it's yeah. been such an extended period that uh we haven't had this people have to go back quite a while to yeah. for the last time we've had these types of pressures in the economy and there's a psychological impact to all of that too i mean i was just thinking about that right it has been a generation that has not seen this type of inflation has not seen negative numbers in their bond portfolio all of that like how do you think that sentiment impacts the market i think it's pretty bad right the, that sentiment for the markets is not a good one uh, i always uh, when i when i sit around with most of my team my analysts i look around the room and i note that you know a trader who came into financial markets supposing he got a job with a big investment bank the day before lehman crashed yeah. and he was fortunate enough not to have lost his job right. and he stuck around today he's a senior trader and that trader has never been yeah. in an environment where rates are going up and so that means you have a lot more volatility you can have a lot more unexpected uh, events and it's not a comfortable place to be mm-hmm. there is mm-hmm. no doubt about it okay so i'm going to ask you two last questions and then and then we'll finish up as you can tell there's a lot of interest um so given that volatility if you were looking to your fixed income portfolio as ballast where do you find that ballast today So I'd say the ballast within fixed income I I I sound a little bit like a stock record but I think about ballast almost as being a hedge I I would repeat you lower your duration you increase your exposure to uh areas such as REITs for example a lot of people will argue that if you can get access to uh, uh access to assets because basically rents tend to be indexed to inflation and that's yeah. why a lot of people like to have real estate in their portfolio at times like this and more broadly commodities with the rationale on commodities and again it needs to be a bit more active because i'm not saying that we're going to go to peak oil i'm not suggesting that i'm just saying that these will hold value they will mm-hmm. retain the value because they at least you should not see massive crashes coming from the commodity the commodity uh, sectors so i think you have to divide it up like this i would say look at floating rates yeah. floating rate assets are basically bank loans keep in mind again this bank loans are typically they they go up when rates yeah. go up new bank loans which come out will yield larger really yield more and thus bank loans are interesting as well again i would always caution that you know with bank loans uh, and with Mm-hmm. high yield there is a that you get a greater return but there is a greater level of risk of course yeah. so i think that is the that is that would be where i would look for ballast so then the last question is we often talk about the 6040 portfolio is the 6040 portfolio dead what would you recommend as a balanced portfolio given this major inflection point we're at I think 6040 is going to be I don't think about it as dead but it might be it might be taking a nap. <laughs> Let's put it that way, you know. So 6040 I'd say is probably ultimately uh as we get to a point where fixed income has sold off as I expect it will. It starts actually looking quite attractive for a 6040 portfolio mm-hmm. again. 
which is not there yet. I think it might take another year and a half. During this year and a half, I think I'm not an equity uh, expert, so I can't talk to equity valuations. But you know, there's going to be a period when the economy is not crashing, yeah. and you know, equity valuations start looking a bit more attractive. Yeah, because we're enough. not at recession. Yeah, it's a very busy day. Thank you so much. Um, it's all the time we have for today. Thank you for tuning in, Sonal. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Uh, we hope you listen to our next episode tomorrow. Market Watch personal finance reporter Jacob Passy will chart, chat with Nerd Wallet travel and credit card expert Sarah Ratner on how travelers can save money on their next getaway. Thank you for listening. Be well. Have a nice day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.